You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new podcast that combines your passion for comedy and music. You should listen to The Supergroup. It's available only on Stitcher Premium. On each episode of The Supergroup, hosts Tawny Newsom and Alex Kleiner invite a comedian and a musician to write and record an original song with them over the course of a week. You'll hear every step of the process, from writing to rewriting to recording and mixing, songs with Open Mike Eagle, Ted Leo, Paul F. Tompkins, many more. The podcast is funny, but the songs are legit. Listen to the supergroup only on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code LONGFORM for a free month of Stitcher Premium. Again, stitcherpremium.com, promo code LONGFORM for a free month. Here is our show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Uh, we shouldn't pretend that we're here podcasting. We actually just watched the World Cup final, and we're trying to do double duty. That's right. We're just we're, taping this in your basement. Rest in peace, uh, Croatian team. I enjoyed your play very much. Evan Ratliff is on sabbatical in some beach somewhere. And this week on the show, I talked to Megan Greenwell. Megan Greenwell is the current editor of Deadspin. She's the editor-in-chief of Deadspin, the sports uh, website. She's been in that job for all of four months and we talked a lot about what it's like to come into a job like that and also what it's like to like uh, take over a website like Deadspin that was like the outsider insurgent for so long. And now it's 14 years old. Or yeah, years old. Th- this is, I think, a theme in the show because we've been doing this show for so long. But um, many of the publications that were insurgents when we started are now incumbents. Yeah. And uh, the stakes and the whole tone, very different in those two positions. No longer the underdog, even if you want to believe that you're still the underdog. And uh, I asked her about that a bunch, but also we talked about her career before Deadspin. She's worked for Esquire, New York Magazine, ESPN the Magazine. She was out doing Good Magazine with Ann Friedman before that blew up in terrific fashion. Listen to her long-form podcast. And uh, Megan Greenwell, also from your hometown, Berkeley, California. Went to the, went to the same high school, I believe. Uh, uh, she's a couple years younger than me. She was also involved in journalism at the high school level. She was. While I was involved in nothing. <laughs> well, no, I was doing some theater. Doing a little theater. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, but Megan, uh, yeah, she wrote for the high school newspaper. And her second story actually sent a guy in Berkeley to federal prison and it became this national news story that a high school reporter had broken open this huge 
case. And uh, we talked about that too, what it's like to have your second article ever uh, get you like in the pages of People magazine. Uh, Max, I understand uh, that uh, the Decatur Book Festival is happening again. Sure is. Labor Day weekend. Last year, uh, Longform picked a group of authors. We brought them down to the book festival. We wanted to do it again this year. MailChimp said uh, no. <laughs> and they asked Shay Serrano of The Ringer to do it instead. Uh, so there's all kinds of amazing authors going with Shay to the Decatur Book Festival, Labor Day weekend. And you can uh, read along with them this summer at readthissummer.com. You were just at the beach. I was just at the beach, read some books. Read more and go to readthissummer.com to figure out which ones you should read. All right. Well, thanks to MailChimp. Uh, here's Max and Megan Greenwell. Hi, Megan Greenwell. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm doing fine. Good. I'm good. It's nice to be drinking a beer with you. <clears throat> it is. It's a Friday afternoon. You and I are having a beer. I feel like it's deserved. Yes, for both of us. Yeah, uh, I feel like you've had a week. It's been a week. <laughs> I want to talk to you about um, all the things. Okay. Your career, your writing. Cool. Your various pit stops. Cool. But I have had a busy week. Uh-huh. I've not been following media Twitter as I normally do. I don't totally understand what is happening with your company, uh -huh. and I was wondering if you could explain it to me. Sure. Well, my company is owned by Univision Communications, reporters for my website and other websites within our company uh, have reported that that company is pretty fucked. Can I curse? I yeah. can curse, right? Okay. So you and your colleagues have reported that you're like mothership is fucked it's totally fucked yeah financially um because it has massive debts that it cannot get out from under i can take no credit for the reporting but i have very smart colleagues who have done the reporting are there like business side people in your office yes so here's a question i have like you publish a story on deadspin or like you rerun a story from a, one of the sister sites on deadspin and the headline is essentially like Univision is fucked and these like business people uh, have messed up. Yeah. And, and then like you like go to the bathroom or like go get a cup of coffee. Yeah. And you're just standing next to one of these business people who, who fucked up. Yeah. What is that like? Well, so the top executives are not in our building, which is cool. Although I do feel bad for like our head of PR who like is not only in our building, but like he sits like across the room from me basically. And he is really kind of a saint actually about like dealing with this and just being like hey Megan how are you and also like he's going through hell because we're putting him there right but you know one of the reasons I was interested in working for this company in particular was because they will run the stories that nobody else will run and there is no better example of it than oh my god our company is fucked and here's like six weeks of reporting about exactly why it was not a screed or a hit piece at all it was really just like here's the financial case that shows that this is completely unsustainable how do you go about i mean i understand that wasn't you personally doing it but like how do you go about reporting on your own company's fuckedness it's really the same way you report on anything else you know like you still have to go through the communications people to get the official story. You're still finding people on LinkedIn, like sending them cold messages because the people who have fucked it for the most part are so many levels above us. And Univision is 
headquartered in Miami, so they're not with us. Have um, you met them on like some like company retreat or something? No. You haven't come eye to eye with the fuckers. I <laughs> I have come eye to eye with my boss's boss who is upper management at that company. I don't think he's the problem. In fact, I think part of our problem is he's like essentially a puppet that doesn't have <laughs> um, well, I was fine with it until your eyes went really big. No, 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 um, no, 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 no. Your no. boss's boss is a puppet. Go yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> and his bosses have essentially gotten the company in so much trouble. And of course, part of the story here is Univision only bought the Gizmodo Media Group when Peter Thiel sued Gawker out of existence because of a petty grievance. And so Univision picked us up essentially in a fire sale. I say us, although I didn't work there then. And now, you know, less than two years later, it's just sort of like, eh, fuck it. Like, we have to get rid of these people. How are they getting rid of people? Like, people are getting laid off? No, I meant they're getting rid of our our unit, like, by selling us. But it is also true that they did what was supposed to be layoffs and our union negotiated down to buyouts. Um that we lost two people from Deadspin that took voluntary buyouts that were not, you know, involuntarily dismissed. Mm-hmm. But the news this week was that Univision is putting us up for sale. And it's unclear what the timeline for that will be. But at some point, this company will be sold. Unless, like, they don't get offers. And I think that's... I, I understand so little about media financing and how corporations work that, like... I have no real sense of whether we will sell, despite the fact that we are a profitable media company that also, in my unbiased opinion, like does some pretty good shit on the internet. You know, maybe we don't sell and Univision keeps us and that's probably really bad for us. How's morale at the moment? The Deadspin staff is filled with incredibly chill, incredibly hardworking people. And so the mantra ever since I've been there, and I've only been there four months, the mantra ever since I've been there is just you blog through it. Like, you just keep writing. And it's really fucking inspiring. It's so cool. I have the best coworkers. And, you know, when the shit goes down, their reaction is sort of like, five minutes of like oh god we're all gonna die in slack and then it's right back to oh god who has this breaking news story it's just a really cool environment to be in and it feels really fun even when everything might be going badly what do you do in the like five minutes when it's like uh oh god we're all gonna die it's still a lot of like jokes (laughs) You know? But I mean, are you like, you are the editor in chief of the oh, website. Oh, me personally. Yeah, you personally. Oh. Like, are, do you feel some pressure to be like, no, 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 the world is not on fire? Or do you just make gallows humor jokes too? I only say we're not all going to die if I truly believe we're not all going to die. <laughs> that seems like a good rule to live by. Yeah, but I mean, I think there are some people who see their role as saying we're not all going to die because that keeps morale up even right. if it's not true. I'm a really bad liar. I don't think I have that in me. But I also, in this case, I don't think we're all going to die because I think 
what's probably going to happen is we are going to sell. And Univision has mismanaged the Gizmodo Media Group so horrifically that I think the odds are just that we're going to sell to somebody better. Not because the perfect suitor is going to buy us, but because working for Univision has been really unpleasant on several levels. Not for me personally. I really love my job. I am having the time of my life. But, you know, on a company-wide level, it's been kind of a mess ever since they bought us. And so we might as well try something else. It's like the opposite of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. It's like the... (laughs) Any devil would be better than this. Any devil would be better than this, right. What do you think the story that those executives in Miami are telling themselves about how this has gone? What's their version of this? I think you didn't have to read very far between the lines of their press release about putting us up for sale to see them saying it's been a disaster. Um, I think they said... Gizmodo Media Group has done a lot of good work during this period and they can do so much better or so much more good work in the absence of us. And it felt coming from them sort of like a dig. And I think a lot of like media reporters on Twitter read it as a dig. But I actually think it's also completely true. I could be spending so much more of my time on journalism if I weren't spending my time, like, freaking out about whatever logistic screw-up has happened most recently. How much of your, like, the pie chart of your life is, like, uh, dealing with logistical screw-ups and how much of it is journalism? There's not as much journalism in my life right now as I would like there to be. And part of that is because there have been logistical screw-ups. Part of that is just because I am in a management job, and that inherently means, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time dealing with personnel issues and, like, making sure the cable bill gets paid or whatever. I don't have to make sure the cable bill gets paid, but that type of thing. Yeah. And, you know, somebody has a complaint and is slacking you 14 times about it, and you need to deal with that complaint because otherwise they're going to be upset. And part of it is also because I'm new, and I'm still... I guess I'm closer to five months than four months in right now, but I think for an editor-in-chief job running a relatively large staff, that's still very new, and it's certainly taken me this much time just to feel like I have my feet under me, and so then when everything else is changing on this corporate level, you know, it's like I plant my feet, and then it rocks again, and then I plant my feet, and then it rocks again, so it's a weird combination of factors, it's you're certainly still in the in the period where you're using like um newborn time lengths like you're like I'm almost at five months that's like the way that people talk about newborns at yeah. some point it's just like I don't know the kid's a year old I don't know it's like right he's two right exactly yeah. and I'm definitely not like, I'm more of a newborn than a toddler it has been before. thirteen and a half weeks yeah yeah I think four and a half months is like eighteen weeks but yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're dead right I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I haven't slept in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Whatever, I can do maths. Mm-hmm. How many people work at Deadspin? I should know the answer to this question better than I do. I believe it's either 22 or 23. And this is my understanding, uh, the first time like you've been a boss. You've managed writers and freelancers and stuff, but this is the first time you've been like the boss. This is the first time I've run an enterprise, yeah, for sure. How's it going? Do you like it? I do. It feels really scary and really stressful 
And I also really like it. It's really fun. Um, even the stress is like kind of energizing and it feels like adrenaline rather than the kind of crushing stress that saps all my energy. When you get a, like um, the 14 slack complaint, are you like, mother fuck? Or are you like, here we go? It depends what the complaint is. <laughs> But I would say a lot of times it's sort of like, yeah, here we go. Like, these are interesting problems to solve. Um, I work with some really crazily talented people. And to be able to solve their problems actually feels like a huge luxury. Because my philosophy of editing or being any kind of boss is very much like your job is to clear all of the roadblocks out of the way of your writers or your employees so that they can do the best work they possibly can. And so if me dealing with some logistical hurdle for a writer who's working on a story that we're all really excited about, like gets them one step closer to that story, then that's great. Um, I feel like that sounds really Pollyanna. No, you just sound like a good boss. I hope so. What I'm do you, trying. What do you feel like you're like uh, not good at yet? Oh, man. Uh, so many things. I We are not a very meeting-based culture at Deadspin, but, you know, occasionally you have to have, like, staff meetings, and I'm realizing I'm really bad at running meetings. I just get nervous and kind of flustered, and I just, like, spill everything out. And then also there are parts of what Deadspin does that I am very experienced in and parts of what Deadspin does that I'm way less experienced in. And so, you know, the really quick news blog that is hilarious and perfectly timed and has the exact right sharp angle that everybody is going to pass around is obviously a hallmark of what Deadspin does. And it's just not my strength at all. Like, I am not, you know, I am the eighth best headline writer on staff if it's like a news headline and not a feature headline. On most things, I would say I'm you know, the eighth best at like finding the right angle for it. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly parts of the enterprise that I think I'm much closer to the best at, but that part of it, I just have to put the people who work around me in the best position to succeed because they can do it so much better than I can. But that's exciting too, right? Like the fact that we have the best funny headline writers in the world means I don't have to do it and means I can just sort of like bask in reflected glory. <laughs> and that's a cool thing about editing. Yeah, that is cool. Although it's like, it takes some level of uh, self-confidence to admit that you're like the eighth best. Like, did you feel some need to prove yourself when you got there? Did you have to write like a couple of funny headlines or did you just walk in and you're like, this is not my shit? I don't mean it's not my shit in that I'm not going to try. Like, I want to get better at those things. Like those things are so core to what we do that I don't want to be the eighth best. I feel totally competitive when it's like, yeah, wait, I can write a funny headline too. <laughs> and I don't mean that actually to prove myself to my colleagues. Like I think they know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, but I want to be able to hang, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think there's some sense of like, I've got to prove myself. I'm the first external hire to be the EIC in Deadspin history. And so not everybody knew me or knew anything about my work. And I don't think there was resistance to me being hired. But I do think when you're coming in from outside, there's a like need to say like, 
hey, no, I can do this. But somebody told me about like a management adage at one point that is everybody tries to prove that they're competent um, Mm -hmm. when they first start. And what you actually have to prove is that you're trustworthy. And that is something that I think about all the time. I feel confident enough in my skills that I think that's going to come through, even if I'm not the best funny headline writer on staff. I think I can communicate my skills in other ways. But to say to this group of people, especially when it's a relatively large group of people, you know, hey, I am here for you. I want to make your job easier. Please trust me and let me in on the process so that I can do that. That feels much more important to me. We're uh, we're obviously 18 weeks into your tenure. Yes. Just did the math in my head. Yeah. And uh, my sense is like, uh, despite the seas being rocky, like uh, it's going pretty well. You you like it? It's really fun. I mean, I I do feel really lucky um, to just like work with brilliant people and do cool stories and just get to experiment. I mean, the vibe is very much like hey, let's try this and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And that means like trying a particular story and maybe the lead doesn't pan out. And it also means like, let's try this goofy gimmick and see if anybody's interested in it. And the advantage I have, you know, I am coming in from outside. And so I see things from a slightly different perspective, although I've been a Deadspin reader for a decade or more. But many people on the Deadspin staff... Um, have worked there for a really long time. Um, Barry Pachetsky, who's our deputy editor, has been there, I think he's coming up on his nine-year anniversary. So the two of us are the two top editors on the site, and he has all the institutional knowledge and can tell you basically every piece Deadspin has ever run. And I can say, hey, you know, maybe we should try this weird thing that Deadspin would never have thought of before. So it's a nice balance, and it feels really fun. Hey, I'm going to put Megan on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about a sponsor making today's show possible. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. No subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. And I know for a fact that there's nothing you love more than multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. Uh, I recently listened to a book on Google Play. I listened to uh, Just Kids by Patti Smith. Somehow I had never read it before for shame, but I had a long car ride. Uh, I was solo with my kid. So not solo. I was with my kid, but he sleeps in the car. Thank the Lord. And uh, I listened to all of uh, Patti Smith back and forth on this like two, four hour car rides. It was incredible. Uh, you yourself should have an incredible experience with an audiobook, and you should do it through Google Play. For a limited time, you'll get 10 bucks off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash longform. Again, that's g.co slash play slash longform. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Let's get back to Megan. How do you make the place a relevant destination in 2018? Like, I too have been reading Deadspin since like the very first days of Leech, and it was so unique when it started. Like, his voice was so unique, 
and the perspective and just like the need it was meeting, you know, like I just remember I had this like a newspaper job in Florida and it was like pretty slow at the beginning of the week. It was a weekly newspaper. It was a pretty slow at the beginning of the week and then really crazy at the end of the week. And uh, I remember just sitting at my desk and like killing time on Deadspin mm-hmm. and I would read, I like literally would read every post. And since then, obviously 15 years later or whatever it is, how long has it been around? Uh, since 2005 so 13 13 years years. like the sports media industrial complex is insane and that tone and perspective has been like mimicked and commodified and spun a thousand different ways how do you think about deadspin's role in that universe and like, how do you stay true to what it is and evolve? Like, how, how do you manage Deadspin in the age of NBA Twitter? Mm-hmm. I would push back on the premise a little bit in that I don't think there is anybody doing what Deadspin does. Still, I think there is a lot more sports media than there was when Leach started the site. But... You know, Deadspin's original motto was sports news without access, favor, or discretion. And so much of sports news is still governed by access. Clearly, that is not true for every site on the internet or every sports publication, but it's true for most of them, at least the big ones. I mean, Bleacher Report sold to Turner Broadcasting, and ESPN has to renegotiate rights all the time, and... Sports Illustrated, like, does have to play the access game because they need a cover star. And I don't mean this to be derogatory to any of those publications, all of which I think adds something to the ecosystem. But the kind of, I don't like the word gonzo, but like the sort of like buccaneering, like, fuck it all, like, let's just call it as we see it thing, I do think is still really rare and there still feels like there's less sports media than I would expect. You know, BuzzFeed, which we think of as doing everything, briefly had a sports (laughs) vertical, but like hasn't in a very long time. Vice shut down Vice Sports. There is a particular set of complicating factors when you're trying to do sports media on the internet. And I think Deadspin remains the leader in that. What are those factors? What are those complicating factors? I mean, the access is certainly one. Um, The lack of rights is a real problem. Like, you can't just post the cool highlight clip on your website because somebody has rights to that clip and they will absolutely come after you. And I also think there's a... I think sports feels foreign to people who are not sports fans in a way that I think is incorrect. I think there is no reason it needs to feel more foreign than education reporting or politics reporting or any other kind of reporting that people consume even though they're not insiders in that world. But it does feel that way to people. Mm -hmm. And I think Deadspin does a better job than anybody else of breaking through. You know, I hear from friends all the time, oh, I'm so not a sports fan, but I thought that one thing you did was really great, which is a totally gratifying feeling. But I think that has made it harder for publications where the editors are maybe not themselves sports fans to figure out 
the path for sports coverage. And I think it's easy to dismiss sports as the toy department. You know, that's the old newspaper adage. And the idea that sports is not necessary in the same way that politics reporting is necessary, in the same way that race or gender or social justice reporting is essential to what a publication does, it's very easy to say, well, those are just games. And I think that's so deeply incorrect, but I think it's a really pervasive sentiment out there. That's interesting. I I think that I, I don't mean any of this. None of this is like an attack. I'm just interested yeah, yeah. generally like in my own shifting sports media consumption. That's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to figure out. So I used to read Deadspin religiously because there wasn't a ton of reporting right? in that DNA of what the site was. Like it was just like better takes. Yeah. Right. The better writing. It was the good blog. It was the good blog. Yeah. Right. So I think the thing is it's less like where does Deadspin's like reporting fit into the sports ecosystem when you think about ESPN or Sports Illustrated or these like startup fireworks that flare up and and go out and and Deadspin's been so steady. I mean more like House of Highlights. Mm -hmm. Like one staple Deadspin post is still like, here is a crazy thing that happened last night. Here's a really good headline, like an amazing like opening joke like here's the highlight yeah here's a joke and we're out yeah it's the best it's the best right and and i guess what i'm trying to figure out is as the editor-in-chief of the site in this era where that thing has become somewhat ubiquitous yeah like how do you make the place stand out i this is a thing i think about a lot um you know Deadspin used to be the place that you would get these gifts, right? And you're now you can get those gifts in a million different places. Um, and now we're rarely the fastest, I would say, with those gifts. And we definitely used to be the fastest. Um, I, I think, I think it's still a writing thing. Yeah. Like the jokes are better. I think, mm-hmm. like. Participating in NBA Twitter when you're watching an NBA Finals game is like a cool special thing. Like it just feels so fun. And I feel like what Deadspin's version of that is the next morning is just like distilling that to its best pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe there is a time when nobody's interested in that at all anymore because NBA Twitter is that big. But right now I can tell you that that's not how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the numbers bear out like that people really want the deadspin take on the idiot J.R. Smith play. Yeah. You know, they just people seem to really like that. I don't know. I really like that. Me too. I don't. I didn't mean any of that to be defensive. It's just interesting because although clearly basketball Twitter is a competitor to Deadspin in the same way that, you know, SB Nation is a competitor to Deadspin. It feels like there is more potential to be complementary than there is to eat each other alive, I guess. So what's the competitor to Deadspin? Kind of everything and nothing. I mean, 
you know, when Deadspin started, it was truly doing a thing that nobody, you know, you had like, there was ESPN and there was Deadspin, right? And it was like always the little guy. And it's true at this point, like we're not necessarily the little guy. Obviously, compared to ESPN, we will always be the little guy. But we're like kind of legacy media at this point yeah. in this like funny way. And so I think the competitor is, sure, like anybody cracking sports jokes and also doing some investigative reporting on the internet, which is everybody. But there's still a like privileged position and I don't mean to take that for granted like that is a thing that could change at any time and the scary thing about inheriting a thing that is now a legacy publication is like if you are the EIC you could actually be the one that fucks it up right and I am very conscious of not wanting to be the one that fucks it up so I think the challenge is there is a lot about Deadspin that is working you know, our PR person just tweeted, like, our traffic numbers compared to a year ago. And, like, they increased, like, 42 fucking percent. Like, it's cool. That's great. But obviously, like, that is not a thing that you can take for granted and just keep doing the same thing. So you can, like, use what works and, like, just keep expanding it. Right. That's a That is a tough balance, right? How do you not be the person to fuck it up and keep it moving forward and evolving like how do you keep it what it is and make it something new yeah that's hard and it doesn't feel i mean it feels tough but it feels because it's not starting from a period of crisis i came in like in a fairly good time in deadspin history um it feels like an opportunity more than it feels like a oh my god, like, what if I fuck it up? Like, I do have stress dreams that, like, what if I fuck it up? But I also think that's just my personality. And I, more of my time is spent thinking, like, man, this one thing was really cool. Like, what new cool thing can we do? And that's just, like, the flip side of that coin. But I don't know. That's why it feels fun and energizing and exciting. What kind of stress dreams do you have? Oh my God, I have so many stress dreams. How do they manifest? So they used to be stress dreams about having screwed something up in a story. Mm -hmm. I actually, at one point, when I was an editor at ESPN the magazine, I woke up at 4 a.m. in a blind panic, convinced that I had transposed two different marathon times in a long, long feature. And fortunately, our operations staff was still closing the magazine. And so I called at 4 a.m. And I had, in fact, transposed those two times. And it was about to go to print. And it was like I was dead asleep. And I just, like, realized it out of nowhere. Which doesn't sound like the healthiest thing in the world. No, but, but, like, that's a stress dream that paid off. Yeah. Occasionally they do pay off. But now they're much (laughs) less about, like, stories. And they're much more about, like is this great staff member I have happy? And like, what if somebody gets poached? Those sound very literal. Oh, no. They're, oh, yeah. No, they're not. There's no metaphor at all. I mean, I I truly like, maybe I'm just like a simpleton, but I <laughs> like, it is all just right there. Like I wake up convinced that I have transposed the marathon times or I wake up convinced that, 
you know, our star 24 year old is going to put in notice the next day. And sometimes I'm right and more often I'm wrong, but it's all very surface level. <laughs> Mine are like, um, I've been having one lately where I, um, like I committed a terrible crime and I, not in the dream. I don't commit the crime in the dream. Like the dream starts and I've committed the crime. Oh yeah. And then the whole dream is just like me trying to figure out whether or not to like turn myself in or oh, confess shit. in what whatever way. And then I think it's all for the like relief of waking up and realizing that I hadn't committed the crime. That's super interesting. So that makes me think like stress dreams is actually the wrong way to no, characterize. You just don't sleep and think about work. <laughs> right. Like I just have like 3 a.m. panic attacks. I, think I don't. Yeah. I've never really been a dreamer. And it's interesting because like in my writing, like I'm very like the least charitable version of it would be I'm very like mechanical and I'm very like this is what happened and then this happened and I don't deal in like the beautiful metaphor or whatever and I think like that's probably just a personality trait <laughs> I am like a straightforward person probably to a fault so yeah I've never like there's no like narrative or storytelling <laughs> in my sleeping it's really just oh my god this is something I've screwed up very badly and it's going to come back to bite me. Is there any difference in the way you're wired as a writer and as an editor? I've always been a much better reporter than I have been a writer. I started out in newspapers and, you know, I was writing very like business-like stories where it's like... You're you working have... at like daily newspapers? I was working at daily newspapers for the first while of my career and... You know, I was doing a lot of sort of breaking news stuff where it was like you have 12 inches to communicate the crime that happened and nobody is interested in the beautiful way you describe it. Please just get the facts across. And I think that comports very well with my personality. And then I went far into long feature land, but both as a writer and an editor, I think I'm much more interested in like getting the facts of the story across and so my first editing note on whatever the story is, is two things. One, here are the things that are missing. Like, here are the voices that are missing. Here are the scenes that you need. And two, your through line isn't clear enough. You know, I learned very quickly that magazine writers really hate when you ask them for a nut graph. So I found, like, tricky gymnastics ways to get at that. But it's... I'm always just asking for a nut graph and for the rest of the story to go to the nut graph. I'm very structure obsessed. I focus on how the structure can be better the first moment I see a first draft, which I learned once I started working in magazines, not everybody does because I would be like, you know, I would go into a meeting where a bunch of us we were comparing notes and I would say, okay, like here are all the ways we can fix the structure. And people would be like, well, wait a second, like the structure is like a second draft thing. And I was like, but I don't understand how you can understand the story if you don't understand the structure. And as a writer, I'm very much like that as well. You know, I, I really have to have an outline. I have to know this is section one, this is section two, this is section three. And I have to write it from the very beginning straight through to the very end. These people who can like pick up one section and then like do a totally different section and then weave them together, like astound me. Um, <laughs> I've talked to a bunch of people for the show, a bunch of editors, and very few of them like write two. 
lots of people just like make call one way or the other. Yeah. And so I am interested in how you kind of like balance those things. Yeah. I mean, how much were you writing? So you were at Good Magazine and then ESPN the Magazine and then uh, New York Magazine for a bit and then Esquire. Yeah. All like editing features. Yeah. And basically not writing at all. Not writing at all. Like, no. Did you want to and just couldn't find the time? Did Like was it too hard to split your brain? Why not? Most of those places were places that like really actively discouraged editors from writing. And so it was never really on the table, I think, just from a job perspective. I do find it a little bit hard to split my brain. I'm writing. So I was freelancing for a little while before I took this job and I was still under contract for a few features when I took the job. And so like I have a feature story due in 12 days and finding the time, yes, is hard. But of course, there's always time in a day. It's just being able to switch my brain during that time that is like a bit of a challenge for me. You know, people like told me like, just get up early and do it. And getting up early is not a problem for me, but getting up early and then like concentrating on a thing that is not my job is hard. Right. And I find reporting completely engrossing in a way that it's very easy for me to just switch into reporting mode and like forget about my job for a day. Writing is not like that at all for me. So I think that is part of why I wasn't really writing during those times. But also, I really kind of stumbled into feature editing. And so I edited hundreds of features before I had ever written a single feature. How did you stumble into it? Well, I got an editing job when I had only ever been a newspaper reporter. And I had no editing experience. And this was at Good Magazine. And I was... Mostly editing daily stuff, but of course our staff was so small, I think we were eight people, that I ended up editing print stuff as well. So I just had to sort of learn to be a features editor. And then when Good imploded fairly spectacularly, people all of a sudden wanted me to be a features editor. And so ESPN the magazine called me and were like would you be interested in being a features editor and editing these like six, eight, 10,000 word stories about sports for like this really great, beautiful prestige product. And I was sort of like, yeah. And I've edited some features, but I haven't done a lot of them. And so I went to ESPN and just like, you know, for three and a half years, just edited a ton of features, but I had never written one. When you got to Bristol, aside from like having moved to Hartford, like was there a moment where you're like, I just signed up for a job that I don't technically know how to do? Oh yeah, no, for sure. When I went out there to interview, they flew me out from LA to Bristol to interview. And I did this whole day of interviews and I'm good at interviewing because I like think I'm good at like connecting with people on that level. But I also like I get kind of excited talking about the work. And so... I felt like this interview day went really well. They had me interview with 12 people in one day. And then... Well, that's super intense. It was so intense. And I'm in this place I've literally never been before. And they have this huge campus. And I'm meeting, like, these people who are very smart 
And many of them were like sort of ESPN lifers. And they know way more about sports than I do. And they know way more about editing features than I do because I've never really edited many features before. And so the executive editor is walking me out at the end of the day. And he's like, you know, it was so good to meet you. Like, we'll be in touch soon. You know, you should know that like, every other candidate we have for this job, like serious candidate, has more experience than you. So if it doesn't work out this time, you know, we'd love to stay in touch in the future. And I just thought that was a rejection. Like, I thought he was rejecting me at the end of the day. And it turned out it wasn't and I got the job. But like, you know, he and I both knew, like, I was getting it. I had done an editing test. So I think I had proved that I was competent at it. But it was from instinct and experience with other kinds of storytelling, not like actual experience with that. So it wasn't like you had to like um, fake it to everyone that you had more experience than you did. Like I definitely didn't lie was... about it. No, you know, I probably put the best spin on the experience that I did have, <laughs> but yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't fake it, but then you get in there and it's sort of like, Oh yeah, no, like I, yeah, sure. I know what I'm doing. It felt much more important, you know, the competence versus trust thing. It felt much more important in that job to prove competence, in part because I was just much younger and in part because, like, I yeah, I did feel like, what if they figure out <laughs> that I actually don't know what I'm doing? I feel like you brought all kinds of writers into the magazine that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Like, Taffy wrote that synchronized swimming yeah. piece and... Amanda Hess wrote a piece about boobs. Yeah. That like that was in Best American Sports Writing. I was very pleased about that. This is an incredible article. But I just feel like it is remarkable that you went there without a ton of experience and still found a way to sort of like push the edges of what that magazine could be. How do you do that? Well, that's what I felt like my advantage was because I was never going to be the top basketball expert or the most experienced features editor on that team. But I did, again, because I was coming from the outside, like I think this has been a real theme in my career, I had a different set of people whose writing I read regularly and I had a different set of people who I knew could be good sports writers. Like this is a drum I beat all the time people think they could never write about sports because they didn't grow up scoring games or because they don't watch the NBA finals now. And I think editors treat them that way as well. And I think it's been to the detriment of sports writing because it dramatically limits the different perspectives you're going to get. It dramatically limits like who's part of this and who isn't. Like the fact that only white men write about sports in general, like is very much a factor of like, white men were encouraged to like score games when they were growing up and like other people weren't. So I think that was very much a response to like, I have to find my competitive advantage here. And my competitive advantage is like, I know writers, you don't. And so I hired Mina Kimes for the magazine, who's now, you know, like the star of ESPN TV. And you that should get was... Like, you should get like residuals for that, I think. I really should. Like, why is why am I not getting a percentage of her contract? Um, but like Mina had not written about sports. She had written like the one famous article about watching Seahawks games with her dad. But 
she was by no means a sports writer and she was just like somebody who's writing I liked and so not having enough experience was actually I think the key to success in terms of finding different writers what was it like when those stories started to hit like you're there you're like trying to figure this out you're like playing your competitive advantage and then I feel like those stories were working particularly on the internet yeah I think they were. You know, I think a lot of it was they were like sports stories for people who like don't read a lot of sports journalism. And so they got passed around on a different swath of Twitter than they would have otherwise. Like I probably didn't edit a lot of stories that were like huge hits in NBA Twitter. Right. But I did have a bunch that like got new readers, which was always exciting like to me that's the most fun thing i love hearing the i'm not even a sports fan but i really loved that right. article so yeah it was fun and exciting i mean it was just like <sighs> diversifying who can be an espn the magazine writer mm -hmm. and diversifying what an espn the magazine story is was always my favorite part of that job and has been my favorite part of every job I've ever had. And I, you know, certainly can't take full credit for that at ESPN. Like that was very much a priority there in general. But because I was not, I was the only senior editor who wasn't primarily dedicated to one of the major sports. I had the luxury right, you got to, float. to do the weirder stuff. Yeah. So you went from there, New York Magazine, and then you were, what was your title at Esquire? Like features? I was, um... Executive Features Editor. ESPN, New York Magazine, Esquire. Those are like some like uh, storied magazine yeah. brands. Yeah. Um, now I'm slumming it on the blog. Is that your question? <laughs> no, no. My question is kind of like, I feel like you, you um, Esquire was like after the regime change there. Mm -hmm. And Good was this kind of like young and exciting thing that yeah. did implode in... in uh, fabulous fashion. I, I'm just interested, like, it, there was a couple of years there where you were, like, at these, st yeah, storied magazine companies at different points in their, like, life cycles. And mm -hmm. I I wonder what it's like to be off that now. Mm -hmm. So I've always, until now, I've, like, always worked on the part of the company that is not the main part of the company. So at ESPN, I was on the print magazine, and obviously that is primarily a TV and digital company. At New York Magazine and at Esquire, I was primarily on the digital side of publications that are known primarily, I would say, for the print publication. And so that was fun and exciting in a lot of ways, but I have never worked at a publication that is good at actually treating the print and the internet thing equally and actually like merging them in a successful fashion. So at the beginning of my career, I was at the Washington Post and like at that time, the website was actually an entirely different company that wasn't even in DC. It was in Virginia. So right. there was a river between us. Uh, There's a great Eric Wimple story that ran in the Washington City paper in like 2008. Yeah. About the divide between the like print newsroom yeah. and the digital people across the Potomac. I was there then and I was 23 and so I was young enough to see how stupid this was, but like had not nearly enough power to do anything about it. But I think, you know, now there probably are publications that are good at 
truly having merged those, but I've never worked at any of them, um, at least not during the time that they are good at that. Mm-hmm. So like even Esquire, which I was at, you know, less than a year ago at Hearst, print and digital are very separate and they work in different buildings and they have maybe a weekly meeting, but there's not a lot of overlap there. So though I miss a lot of things about working in print and I would like to work in print again at some point in my career, a real selling point of the Deadspin job was like, no, there's really just the one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can Um, just do the one thing. You can just do the one thing and that thing does a lot of different things, but you don't actually like have to have this divide that I've never seen successfully bridged in my own working life. When you were 23 and working at The Post across the Potomac, what were your aspirations then? Like, what did you want your journalism career to look like then? I thought I'd be a newspaper reporter for the rest of my life. Really? Yeah. When I got- Was that what you wanted? Yeah. When I got the internship at the Washington Post when I was fresh out of college, which was not even the goal. The Washington Post was not the goal. Um, The goal was the internship at the Oregonian, which junior year, between junior and senior year, I had been the last person cut from the internship and I was devastated. I like he called me on my cell phone. I knew I was a finalist. And I like sank to the ground in Manhattan because I was like so crushed by this. And then my senior year, they canceled the internship program. And I was just like devastated. Like I saw working as at the Oregonian as my path. And so I, I grew up in part in Portland and that newspaper at the time was just incredibly good. Um, local news is like a thing I really care about. And I wanted to be a religion reporter. I thought that was my ultimate career goal was that I would be a religion reporter at the Oregonian. Your mom is a... My mom is an Episcopal priest and I grew up religious. I am no longer religious, but I majored in religion in college and was... I'm just like obsessed as a reporting question with other people's religions because it's like... That's the thing that if you can get people to talk about that thing, like you've got everything, right? Like, well, now I need to ask you about it. About what? Religion. Oh, okay. When did you get off religion? When I was 18 and I went to college and I was like rebelling against my mother, who is a priest, and she's like a very wonderful priest. She like helped write the gender inclusive marriage rights for the Episcopal church so that it wasn't like one man, one woman type of stuff. And she is like, she now runs uh, the cathedral, the Episcopal cathedral in Cincinnati. That is the largest cathedral in the country that's run by a woman. So like, I didn't grow up in like a fundamentalist uh, religion or anything like that, but you know, you go to college and you don't want to have to go to church every Sunday. And I've never gone back to that, but man, was is that an important part of like who I am in mm-hmm. terms of like how it shaped me. And in college, I was just fascinated by like hearing that story from everybody else, no matter what kind of religion they grew up in. And yeah, I've never gone back, but, you know, I go to Christmas services when I'm visiting my parents and things like that. So the Oregonian was the dream, but even uh, once that didn't work out and you landed the post thing, like... your thought then was like, it's going to be newspapers. Yeah, my thought was I got the internship at the Washington Post and then like by some 
stroke of luck, they hired me out of the internship. And I was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my career at the Washington Post. Like, that is what I'm going to do. It seemed like so clear in that moment. And then a couple of things happened. One was that I just did not like DC at all. I liked it when I was 22. And then, you know, I grew up and I was 26. And like, I didn't like it anymore because I like didn't want to go to happy hour at the fratty bar because I was far too mature for that. It was also kind of the dark days of the Washington Post. I was there from 2006 to 2010. And that was pre Bezos. And there were a lot of management changes all of the time. Like I could not keep the same editor for any length of time. And there were constant rounds of buyouts and layoffs and et cetera. And it just felt terrible to be there. It felt like there was no path for me either at the Washington Post or in newspapers at all. And so either I was going to have to leave journalism or I was going to have to find some other path. And so I got a lot of amazing opportunities at the Post. You know, they sent me to Baghdad when I was 23. Whoa, really? I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, they sent me to Baghdad when I was 23 years old. And I was like a reporter in the Baghdad Bureau, like covering the war. How long were you in Baghdad? I was in Baghdad like three months. Well, that's wild. Yeah. Were you good at it? Yeah, I think I was because I it was just the ultimate like reporting challenge because this was in 2007 and the war was like in full swing. I got there just after the troop surge had gone into effect. And so, you know, there were curfews all of the time. Our security f- people who worked for the post wouldn't let us go a lot of places but on the other hand, in, like in some ways, it's the easiest reporting assignment in the world because you walk out the front door when you're allowed to. And story ideas just fall from trees, right? Because there aren't that many Western reporters, even in 2007 there. So I think I was good at, yeah, finding stories. I wrote some stories there that I'm still really, really proud of. Is there one that comes to mind? Yeah. So I wrote about, um, this was an A1 story in the Washington Post about how the militias were essentially creating a black market for real estate in Baghdad. Um, This was not something that had been reported on before. But, you know, what they would do is they would go to your house and they would say, we're going to buy your house for this, you know, dramatically underpriced. And then if you said no, you know, the next time they'd come with a gun and the offer would be much lower. And if you said no again, like the third time they would just kill you. And so I had met this guy just in the market who had just sold his house after his promise to his dying father had been that he would keep the family in this house and he was just forced to sell it. And so it was one combination of just listening to this really emotional, heart-wrenching story and one part like really hard, like sort of numerical reporting, like tracking down how this trend was manifesting. But I also had to do like daily kind of roundup style articles because I was the junior member of the bureau. So it was like 25 people were killed in a car bomb in this neighborhood and 30 people were killed in one over here. And two American service members were killed, like literally every day just doing that roundup. If it had been a different era, like if you had just been doing this in, you know, 1997 instead of 2007 and there wasn't the same sort of like fatalism about newspapers and such, Mm -hmm. like would you have just kept doing that? Like would you become some foreign correspondent? A better way of asking the question I'm asking is like, do you kind of like resent coming along when you came along? Was that what you really wanted to do? 
know. I mean, you know, another version of the 97 versus 2007 question is like, had I come along in 2017? Like, the Washington Post is doing great right now. Once Bezos bought it, all of my friends who had stayed, who started around the same time I did, felt like it had really paid off for them. You know, they had made it through the dark days and now it was great. And I think the likelihood that I would have remained there would have gone up dramatically. But I also can't say I regret it because it's led me to some really cool places. And I do love editing in a way that I didn't expect to. And I love management in a way that I didn't expect to. And I have a an aptitude for features in a way that I don't think I could have dreamed of at that point. So I certainly don't regret it, but I do think there is an alternate version of my life had the years been slightly different where, yeah, I just never left the Washington Post for sure. But there really isn't like an alternate version of your life where you weren't doing journalism, right? No, I mean, I think I briefly, well, I briefly thought about going to law school and then I applied to PhD programs in American religious history after I left the post. But basically, no. I mean, I've been doing it. I was 14 when I started doing journalism. So it has seemed like a very windy path in some ways and an incredibly straightforward path in other ways. I feel like you've been um, public, quite like uh, transparently public about like career moves, mm-hmm. particularly like uh, when you've been laid off. Mm-hmm. I also feel like you just like kind of like sound off about the media sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wonder, particularly in like announcing to Twitter when you've been laid off, which happened for you at Esquire, but also just like in general, what the benefits of that level of transparency are. Because Twitter is such a land of like faux positivity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what what you uh, what you've gotten out of like just putting it out there. I think this is a lesson I learned from when Good imploded. Um, everybody wrote about that. Everybody wrote that this entire staff of people had been fired, and I got a lot of job inquiries about it. So, in the times that I've been laid off since then, it has become it it has been clear to me because of the Good experience that like it can only be good to be transparent when you're looking for a job and be transparent about why you're looking for a job. And Twitter is a horrible cesspool in a lot of ways. But when you are going through some shit, like Twitter actually turns out it can be really nice. Like I tweeted about being laid off at Esquire and I was laid off at Esquire. You know, I was hired in this like expansion of their ambitions for digital features And they laid me off within nine months because they just decided that wasn't a priority for them anymore. And when I tweeted about that, like, I think it ended up embarrassing them or or the narrative on Twitter was it was much more embarrassing for them than it was for me because, like, people seem to think I'm talented and, like, cool. And, like, anybody who would lay me off is a terrible monster. And while I don't believe that they were terrible monsters, like... You know, I certainly was clear that I felt like they had done me wrong. And yeah, I absolutely got job inquiries off of just saying, like, I have been laid off. And so when I'm talking to younger journalists, which is the thing I actually spent a lot of my time doing, um, you know, sort of coaching and mentoring younger people, I say, like, I know it feels embarrassing. It feels shameful. But you have to say it like that is how you will get your next job. Is it hard to do that? 
not anymore. <laughs> now I've been laid off a bunch of times. So now it's not that hard. It feels sort of exciting because it's like, you know, you're going to have one of those days on Twitter because like, you know, your mentions column is just going to fill up and, you know, it feels terrible to get laid off. And so getting that little rush of adrenaline and that sort of reminder that people think you're reasonably talented is cool. Like I save a lot of those tweets for like, you know, the sort of rainy day pile. Like when I feel like shit and I feel like I'm bad at my job, I can go back to these things and remember that people say like that I edited their favorite story they ever wrote or that they really valued the ways in which I expanded what my publication did or whatever. So, you know, when I tweeted, I had like eight tweets about Esquire when I was laid off there, one of which like I had to delete, never sign an NDA if you can possibly afford it. <laughs> Most people cannot afford it as a thing because if you're being laid off, like you have to take the severance money. But um, yeah, no, I had like eight tweets about it. And most of them were like, as a reminder, like, here are all the things I've accomplished at this job. So, like, here are all of the things I can do for yeah. you, potential next employer. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It was kind of like Megan Day on, on the internet. Yeah, it's nice. And I am very conscious of trying to do that for other people because people are laid off, like, not uncommonly. And I think, you know, not that I have a particularly huge platform on Twitter or anywhere else, but insofar as you can use that platform to prop up people who are, you know, quite possibly living the worst day of their professional life, I feel like I have a responsibility to do that. Uh, I have another thing to ask you about. Okay. Did you have any success as like a journalist in high school? <laughs> wow, that sure feels like a loaded question. Another it? way I could ask that question is, um, were you ever described um, as a high school Lois Lane? I think that probably happened at one point. I think it did. Okay. <laughs> I think it did. Tell, tell, right. uh, just tell the story of the story that you broke in high school, then All I will right. let you go. So when I was a high school sophomore, I had gotten into journalism because I wanted to do creative writing and my school didn't have a creative writing class. And the second story I was assigned to as a reporter for the high school newspaper was that this girl had died in an apartment. There's no short version of this story. This girl had died in this apartment about a block away from our high school. And it was the only public high school. I went to high school in Berkeley, California. Um, it was the only public high school in town. And it seemed unlikely that she went to one of the ritzy private schools. And so I went to the registrar, assuming that she was a student there. And the registrar said, no, she was not a student there. Anyway, it turned out that she was not a student there because she was an indentured servant who had been brought in from India by the biggest landlord in town. And he had actually not killed her. Everybody assumes this story is going to... He killed her. Uh, she had died in a carbon monoxide poisoning that was because of a construction problem. Um, anyway, it ended up sort of exposing this indentured servitude ring. The landlord and his son went to federal prison for quite a while. It became a whole thing. And it ended up with you being called High School Lois Lane. In People Magazine, yeah. Yeah, in People Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> Wearing like a puka shell necklace. <laughs> <laughs> that was we'll, the best part. We'll put the photo in the show notes. Definitely. Wait, will we? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. 
It does well. What do you say? Maybe I'm just trying to preempt a question that I know is coming or I fear is coming, but it it I have not talked a lot about this story and like you're grinning because you and I are friends and like you know you're sort of like exposing me here because I've not talked a lot about this story. And I've not talked about this story in part because like it was my second story ever and it sent a guy to federal prison and I think less so now we're uh, almost 20 years past it. But for a long time, I felt like I was trying to outrun that and sort of prove my journalistic merits in other ways. Because I think there is sort of an insecurity when something like that happens to you when you're really young that you'll never do anything that cool again. Yeah. And it's taken me a long time to get over that. And I still, I mean on a purely factual level, like, it's entirely possible I'll never send another person to federal prison in my journalistic career. Like, that feels like the type of thing that maybe happens once. And... It's just so crazy that it happened to you the second time you ever wrote a story. Yeah, it is crazy. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I do feel in a lot of ways like it was a gift I lucked into and I don't mean that I didn't do anything right. Like, I don't mean that I didn't accomplish anything there. But there's a lot of luck involved in this business. And, like, the big story sometimes requires an awful lot of luck. And sometimes I feel like, what if, what if that story had happened to me when I was, like, 25 or 35 I'm not even 35 yet but or 55 when like I would have known what to do with it you know like I I did the story but like it's written like a high school newspaper story it's not a good story but the facts were true you know like I had to deal with like a media lawyer on my first ever story fortunately there are a lot of people who will do that pro bono for high schoolers <laughs> but it feels like i don't know it just feels like what if that was my one shot and that's unfair i've like gotten to do some cool stuff i've like gotten to work on some cool stories since then but like what if that was my one like really big important thing do you still worry about that or do you feel like you've outrun it I don't think about it very often at all, which is why I'm not that good at talking about it. Because I like, like I have pretty close friends who I'm pretty sure will learn about this story through this podcast. And, you know, I'm clearly like, obviously I get a little uncomfortable talking about it still. Um, so yeah, I guess that insecurity is always there and probably doesn't take Freud to think that that's probably something that's been driving me my entire career. So like, I'm glad that it happened. It was also a really good education in how professional journalism works, because all of a sudden I was the subject of journalism. And that was a weird and disorienting experience in a lot of ways. And so I am certainly glad it happened. Um, 
but I do sometimes get insecure about it still. I feel like this is where like I give you a hug. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I need one or at least a beer. <laughs> You've had a great career. You're going to do <laughs> lots of great things, Megan Greenwell. Thanks, pal. Um, you know, just because you were a high school Lois Lane, yeah, all right, <laughs> doesn't mean just trying to get that in as many times as possible, aren't you? <laughs> hey, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our sponsors this week, readthissummer.com. Go find yourself a book to read or listen to one with Google Play. Stitcher Premium also sponsored the show, and so did Pitt Writers, the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And thanks to Megan Greenwell for uh, indulging all of my sports media questions and putting up with me when I hadn't slept in like two days. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.